0: are a first time visitor. Would you lift your hands up? We have a packet that we'd like to give you. Do we have any first time visitors? We are home folk. We home folk tonight. Amen. All right. Well, restoration is going to be meeting in that other room. So you are dismissed to go to restoration. Pastor Will's going to be bringing the word. Amen. And then we're going to be having Bible study in here. Amen. I love Bible study. I let everyone get moved around. All right. Well, this is like, I'm pretty sure Pastor was done with Revelation. I'm pretty sure. And so this is, if I I were going to say this was perfect timing, because he just finished Revelation, he's getting ready to go into Daniel, and I didn't want to start Daniel. And so we're going to be doing a Bible study tonight on a book that is absolutely packed and scripture that is absolutely, I'm going to try to get everything and just these little short verses we're going to be studying tonight out, because there's a lot in there. See, uh, in sermons, a lot of times we, you know, we, uh, we breeze over a lot. But I find that studying in Bible study is so important. And as we're going to see tonight, there's a lot of stuff that we can pull out as truths for our life. And so we're going to be in Matthew tonight. And then it's going to be Matthew chapter 9. And then I'm going to be in verses... 9 through 17 now this doesn't seem like a lot because it's only a few scriptures and it's right in between two miracles and I was already in this book because I was studying for another sermon but this is an absolute awesome Bible study just between 9 and 17 that we can unpack so much truth and apply it directly to our lives. So like all Bible studies we need to set context. So context is something that in studying scripture they teach in school you have to understand that the author holds the meaning of the passage. The author holds the meaning of the passage, meaning that we can't take a scripture and take it into, put it into something that we want to preach. We can't take a scripture and put it into what we want it to say. So a lot of times, you know, there's there's times even in my past life where, you know, uh, growing up a pastor's kid, I was able to pick and choose to get just what I wanted. Ain't that right? now don't act like you didn't do the same thing you didn't do yeah we all try that but when we pull the truth out of the word it is taken in context so to know context we have to study the time the culture so the time in this passage of scripture was a time where Jesus was ministering and to understand The significance of the top portion of the scripture we need to understand the significance of the dinner so in the ancient Near East the dinner was a uh, it's it was a lot more important than it is now so whenever they would sit down whenever they would invite people over it was a time of deep intimacy it was a a time where they were able to uh, bring people into their home we we, didn't just go to restaurants So they would would prepare. They would offer their home. Uh, The significance with Jesus, uh, Jesus restored Peter. So part of the concept of the dinner is it was a time where you could mend and offer forgiveness. So in John chapter 21, we see where Jesus prepares a meal by the sea and it was a breakfast and then he invites Peter and then he gives Peter that three important questions that restores him so the, the meaning of a dinner is a lot more important than we can just breeze over the the meaning of the dinner brought a whole new understanding when we step back and we start looking at it how they looked at it it was a time of acceptance if if you accepted somebody, you would offer them into your home. If you if if you were out, if you didn't accept somebody, you didn't have them in your home. And so this is a time where you could, uh, you know, everyone would see you going into their house and be, oh, they're 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 you know they're really good they're good friends. And so the meaning of a dinner is something that's really important, and it's something that Jesus also mentions and it's something we, I mention a lot whenever we talk about Revelation 3 verse 20 and he says I stand at the door and knock if any man were to come and open it. So I I normally just you know stop there and I take that meaning as you know Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking and, and I need to answer it and let him in. But there's also that passage that's right behind it that we often just it right over and it says, and I will come in and I will eat with you. That's setting that stage of intimacy with you. So to understand the dinner table is to understand the intimacy and to understand the acceptance and to understand the value just of that dinner. The time and the place was the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was uh, a lot bigger than it is now. If you were to go over in Israel right now, it would be uh, a little village of stones and ruins. And it's, it's something that, you know, we, we really don't think of as a happening, bust, bustling place. But in the time of Jesus, it was very busy. So the, the road that went through right through Capernaum was the Varamas, which means by the sea, the way of the sea. It connected Egypt, and it went the way of the sea, and it, you could go over uh, to where uh, Iran and Iraq is now, or you could go you know, to northeast, but it was a way of commerce. And so it's a very busy place, and it's also the place where Jesus kind of set up home base when he was in Galilee. And so Jesus is at a very busy place because... He has very important things to accomplish. And here we hear the story of Matthew. Now, Matthew is a tax collector. And I'm trying to just work through this because there's a lot to work through when you're going through Matthew and any book of the Bible set in context. So Matthew is a tax collector. The Romans would hire locals who were, you know, smart, could handle money, but they would, hand, they would hire the locals because the locals knew the other people. They knew the tricks. They knew who was doing what. They knew the fishermen from the businessmen. They knew everybody. So here we find Matthew. Now, whenever Matthew gives his account of his conversion, he kind of gives just a real brief And it's actually funny that Mark and Luke actually give more of a depiction of his conversion than he does. But that's not what is really important to him because Matthew in his writings sets a more broader picture establishing the kingdom of God and the Savior. And so in this passage of Scripture, we see Matthew and he's at his tax collector booth. He's doing his money. He's doing his job. He's probably heard of Jesus. He probably was able to see the big crowds gathering. He might have even heard maybe Jesus sometimes. But at this certain time, in this certain place, Jesus passed by his booth. And he says something very important. He says, come. Just like the word of the Lord tonight, come. Come. Now, that can mean a lot of things in our lives. You know, if we're an unbeliever, if we do not know Christ, come could be what it was for Matthew. Come and follow me. To be a disciple of Christ is something that's it's transactual. That means whenever you leave and follow, you're leaving something. So in Matthew's case, he was probably leaving a great amount of money. Tax collectors were wealthy. Tax collectors... They were very good at extorting because Rome only cared about them getting that number of the money they needed and gave them pretty much free reign to extort a little extra for themselves as long as they were getting their money. And so the tax collectors became very good at coming up with fines and fees and different things to get more money out of their fellow countrymen. So... Matthew was probably leaving behind a great business. Matthew was probably leaving an established business. But Matthew heard the voice of the Lord like so many of us have and could not resist whenever he said, come. And so here we find Matthew. And I'm going to read the passage of Scripture, then we're going to start dissecting it. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who, have, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And he said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine in old wineskins or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Now to just read over that there's a lot to unpack in a short amount of time. First We see that Matthew had his conversion, but that Matthew wanted to share. How many know that whenever you invite Christ into your heart, the first thing you should want to do is to share it? It's not something to be kept. It's not something to be hoarded. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to just work on past. It's something to be shared. It's something that whenever we give our hearts to Christ, we now feel that burning desire within us to spread the good news of the gospel. You see the the passage in uh, Mark 16 and Matthew 28, where he gives the commission to go unto all the world, he enables us through the Holy Spirit that whenever we accept Christ into our heart, the commission starts to burn inside of us. We start to feel that urgency to spread the good news of the gospel. We start to feel that, that urgency to, you know, I'm, I'm burdened for this person. It, it's got me. It's gripped me. And we often start interceding and praying so that they might understand and come to the knowledge of Christ. It's, it's something that often Uh, As you continue in your walk with Christ, it is something that is sometimes left, not steward. And that's kind of like the Pharisees. The Pharisees started off really good, but over time, they went astray. They tried to bring back, see, the, the time from the last book of the Old Testament to the New Testament was a time of, of depravity and one of my surveys you know it, it said that they even had prostitution in the temple and they had you know the Greeks coming in and and that was a time when Alexander the Great you know he was making his his rounds and and uh, they started doing the Greek things working out with the Greeks that was a that was often a time where you know they didn't really wear any clothes and so you see where culture starts impacting Israel until there was a group that kind of arose and said, no, we're going we're gonna to live under the law and there's a war. And then that was kind of the birth. But after a while, they kind of started getting wrapped up into the law and it became a group of acceptance or rejection. Because acceptance and regret and Rejection holds a lot of power. We see that in our schools today with the kids. It's, it's funny how it's starting to make its rounds back through. And so if, if you're accepted, then you're part of the group. But if, if they want to have some kind of power, then they reject you because they established their value based on their rejection of you. And so that's what the Pharisees would do. They would would reject, they would scorn, they would say that we're holy. They really didn't evangelize because the people who were brought up were selected. So they were part of a group, the special group. They They were the clique. But whenever Jesus went in to eat with Matthew... He didn't play by their rules because the tax collectors were treated as traitors by the Pharisees. That's how they were viewed. They had turned their backs on their people and they were taking money. And so in the eyes of Pharisees, they were traitors. And also, they were sinners. And so when Jesus enters into the house of Matthew with all his friends because that's the first thing we want to do, is we want to invite our friends in to experience Jesus. They see Jesus, who is a rabbi, who is a teacher, who is well-versed in Scripture, not playing by their rules because he's giving power away and not holding power over people. He's establishing acceptance. Acceptance. In our church, we, we do a very good job at accepting and loving. And so, you know, this part of Scripture really doesn't, you know, pertain to this church. But it's also something that I'm going to touch on a little bit later in the message, in the message where we're going to start kind of seeing some things that in my life I was heavily convicted over. Because the first thing we read when we see a Pharisee is, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I do not want to be a Pharisee. But then, whenever I touch on it later, we'll all have that little sting. (laughs) Because I felt the sting. So Jesus broke all the rules. Remember, the dinner table was for intimacy, acceptance forgiveness and Jesus was not playing by their rules and so we can read in the passage of scripture where they come to him and when the Pharisees saw they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners but when Jesus heard he said to them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick Now, to understand the sickness is to understand that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the righteousness right here is not implying salvation, but they are not poor in spirit in Matthew chapter 5. They are not lowly in spirit knowing that they need a Savior for they're righteous in their own doing. So whenever Jesus is, is speaking this, he isn't saying that they're saved He's saying he's going for those who need a savior. So many times we need to keep hold and hold fast to that. We need our savior. But Jesus says something that absolutely if we just don't understand it, we breeze right over it and we're going to read it tonight. But go, this is what Jesus said. He said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, what Jesus is doing is he is quoting from their prophet Hosea, and it's Hosea 6.6. So Jesus is establishing something right here. He's saying in Hosea 6.6 it says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. To unpack that first bit of scripture, we can see that Pharisees didn't offer mercy in any way. Pharisees were good at finger pointing. Pharisees were good at taking and extorting from the widows. They were good at taking for their own good and not the Lord. And so he says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So this is what Jesus is saying right here in Matthew chapter 6. He's saying it. This is their prophet. They should know this, but he knows that they don't understand it. And for this next next passage, it says, an acknowledgement of God rather than burned offerings. And acknowledge, see I went to the NIV right there. I told her earlier, but then I read out two passages. So the NIV, an acknowledgement of God rather than burned offerings. So what, this is meaning is in the passage right before they accuse him of blaspheming because he heals the lame man but before he does he says your sins are forgiven and he's and they say blasphemy but Jesus right here he quotes from the prophet because the prophet was speaking the very voice of the Lord at this passage In this time and in that time. This passage of scripture was meant for a purpose, and that was Matthew chapter 6. An acknowledgement of God. He's saying, I'm the great physician. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I would rather have acknowledgement over burnt offerings. I would rather have mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus kind of does this checkmate where they, they can say nothing. He's, he has quoted from their prophet and in both areas has basically said, I'm the Savior. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance We're all in need of a savior, aren't we? Amen. We're all in need of this. And right after that, this is the next part to unpack. Then the disciples of John came to him. Now this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a great ministry. You can you can hear of John the Baptist ministry all the way into the New Testament. Whenever the men traveling on the road, they have been baptized under John's baptism. And, but then they were baptized in the Spirit. So he had a great ministry. But we need to understand one key little fact right here. That these disciples that came to Jesus was interested in God for forgiveness of sins but was not interested in relationship unto God. You see, whenever we come to the Lord with that burning desire of, I need a Savior, I need repentance, we also need to understand that He is Savior and He is Lord. And whenever we place Him as Lord, the problem we often have is we are no longer Lord. When we place him as Lord, we are no longer Lord. That means we are servants. That means his will be done and not ours. That means whenever we're breezing through work and have more important things to do, and he says, hey, stop. Go talk to them we have a very important impasse that we have to decide. If I were going to put a title on this passage of Scripture, it would be, are we going to respond? Are we going to reject? Or are we going to question? You see, Matthew, he responded. The Lord said, follow me. So he he laid down everything. It was transactional. He left everything he had and followed after the Lord, and made him Lord. The Pharisees, they came to him and they rejected him. And then John's disciples, they came to him and questioned him. Now this question was also one of kind of accusation. You see, to understand fasting is to understand something that's very pivotal in our lives, but it's in the law of Moses, it's only in basically found in one book of the Bible, and that's Leviticus, and it's mentioned there two times, and it is mentioned, and it says that we are to basically conflict our souls, and it says that we're to do this on the 10th day of the seventh month of Yom Kippur, So by law, this is the time when you're supposed to fast. And fasting is something that's very important, but it's something that we also need to understand. Fasting is not us twisting the arm of the Lord to get what we want. And so many times we enter into this fast saying, Lord, I need this. I want this. I have done it. I need this. Please, Lord, let it happen. I'm going to fast. It's not fasting. You're hunger striking. And that's what you can call it. It's a hunger strike. It's basically saying, give it to me or else. I want it so bad, I want it more than you. I want it more than this relationship because if you, if you knew what I wanted, you'd give it to me. I can say that because I've thought that. I know whenever I first saw Natalie, I thought, Lord, I would do anything. Just please. And I'm not saying the fast worked. It was was the Lord making me humble. But... Fasting is also something that we can see in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 and 7. If you could put that up, that not this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To lose the chains of the injustice and unite the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Verse 7. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Is this not the fasting I have chosen? To understand fasting is also to understand something very deep and also to understand something very important in our lives. Fasting is to bring our bodies under subjection first. It's It's to make our bodies a yielded servant and not a primary driver. If, if we offer our bodies everything we want and desire, our flesh has a very hunger for sin. We can see this in all areas. We, we don't even need to get out of, outside of food. Proverbs says it's better, it, it groups a drunkard and a glutton in the same Verse. This is something that we need to understand. Fasting is to bring our bodies under subjection. Number two, it's to be thankful for what we have. To be thankful for what the Lord has given unto us. Whenever we fast, it, it brings a whole new perspective into our lives because then we, we, when we stop stepping away from what we need and want and just our desire and our cravings, then we start stepping into this place of saying, Lord, you truly have blessed me. Lord, you truly have given me everything I need. Lord, you've, you've, you've provided for me in such a way that I can't even express my gratitude with even words. And when we fast, it brings that thankfulness. The third thing, it's so that we see that there are hungry still among us. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7 is very clear on what fasting is to do in our lives. It's to bring us to a place where we understand that there are those who do not have. And the Bible says, whenever you fast, take your food, take your shelter, take your clothes and give it to those who are needing. This isn't my words this is the Lord's. And so whenever the apostles of John come before Jesus, they're saying, why are you not being spiritual? Why are you not having your disciples be spiritual? And something that, that Jesus says, if, if they were disciples of John, brings them right into obedience with John's gospel because Jesus quotes the very words of John. If you look at the passages with between 15 and 17. Now make a little marker here. Now let's go to John chapter 3 verses 27 and 30. To this John replied a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice that joy is mine and it is now complete. So when Jesus says this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 9 to John's disciples, he's, he's quoting the very passage to them. To bring them to a firm place of remembrance of your, your the man you followed, your prophet, your rabbi, said these words. I'm saying them to you. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. We can see this in Acts chapter 13, whenever they fast before the Lord. You see, fasting, it, it, Jesus was saying, now's not the time to fast, now's the time to celebrate. Why? Because he's came to heal the sick. He's came to restore. He's came to bring joy. All these things of of interaction with Jesus and those who are sick among them, those who are sinners among them, they're coming to this place of salvation, and this is a time of joy and celebration. Uh, a, a, A wedding was a lot different in that time than it is now. If you were a friend of the bridegroom, which John the Baptist says that he was, if you're a friend of the bridegroom, he's kind of the mediator between the groom and the wedding planner. And so John the Baptist is right before and he's saying, come. This is a call to repentance. He's, he's coming before the Christ. He says, I'm not, I am not the Christ, but he who is coming, I must decrease and he must increase. And so Whenever we're, we're studying this, this interaction with, with Jesus and John's disciples, we see that Jesus is painting a very clear picture of joy. Uh, a wedding celebration lasted over a week, nobody worked. Man, I wish we could have that now. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Look at all the friends we could have in here if they could, if we can, we'd have married couples. We'd be bringing it. We would be evangelizing the young, very fast if we had that in this church, wouldn't we? Bring them in, get them hooked up, get them married, and I'll have a week off. <laughs> the time was a time of joy and celebration. Jesus was reminding them of this, and he's also painting a correlation with the old and new covenant when he speaks of the new wine and the little patch sewn on the garment because I didn't really understand laundry until I was no longer under my mother's house. (laughs) And all it took was one time of washing one of Natalie's Cashmere sweaters and drying it, that I never had to do it again. Take notes. I'm playing. But I did do that. I try to help do laundry now. I've learned from my mistakes. But anyone who understands how new garments and old garments shrink and expand, that's something that I learned very fast when we first got married. Because if you take something and you throw it in the dryer and it's not supposed to be in the dryer and it gets really hot, it came out the size of what maybe Arya or Ava would wear. (laughs) And it was brand new. And it was really nice. And I I got it out. Listen, I was trying to be the good husband. I was trying to get my points. I was trying to, you know, I'm I'm a am I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a protect, I'm a provide, and I'm also gonna nourish her. And so I'm gonna do the laundry while she's gone and when she comes back, I am gonna I'm gonna be like tall cotton. <laughs> you know. And then I was folding it and then I held this thing up and I was like, you know, I don't we didn't have any we didn't have any kids then. And so I was like, how did this get in there? And I, it didn't click at me, you know, with me at first. So I, could, I, I folded everything, I had it by the bed, and I had that one off to the side. Because I didn't understand what had happened. And then she came in, and oh, she was thanking me for such a good job and doing that. Then she saw that really expensive garment that I absolutely turned into an infant size. The way of humbling is a rough road. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, the new covenant and the old covenant can't go together. You can't have sacrifice and him be the sacrifice. You can't keep sacrificing after he made the ultimate sacrifice. So whenever he's telling this to John's disciples, he's, he's more or less giving them also an invitation He's saying that your your Rabbi John was a friend of the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. This is an invitation. But this is also an impasse where you're going to have to decide whether you're going to be in the old covenant or the new covenant because you can't put a patch on an old garment and you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. It's just not going to work you're going to have those times where it's going to rupture because the idea of having a relationship without having a relationship is gonna bring you to a determination in your mind where you're gonna see that all you had was religion we can't have religion we can only have relationship the first Christians they were followers of the way that means they they weren't called Christians till Paul was in I think it was in Antioch I'm pretty sure and so whenever they would see someone who was a follower of Christ they said they were follower of the way the way was Christ leading and we as disciples followed We followed him, and one of the most important things we need to realize is whenever we make him Lord, we put him as Lord and not ourselves, but it's also the transaction of we're laying down our desires, and we are now picking up a cross. The road is often difficult. The road is often treacherous for some. Those overseas get to experience persecution in a way that we don't understand. But they follow the way. For them, it's not religion. For them, they're holding to the everlasting arms. For them, faith is more than an evidence of what I do on Sunday and Wednesday. Faith is something that they have to hold on to because everything else would break inside of them and there would be nothing left to hold on to if they didn't have Christ. So what we need to understand with this passage of Scripture and specifically the part that stung with me the most is whenever we start seeing the characteristics of a Pharisee. And I made a little... A little 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 explanation of what happens the first thing in this passage of scripture is will you make him Lord will you respond or reject or even question this is something that we need to all understand because the Lord often has new things for us to do there's there's a lot of people who say the Lord's doing a new thing and they try to take the meaning of Scripture, and twist it and to turn it. The new thing was the new covenant. Everything that the Lord calls us to do, He's already commanded us to do in Scripture. We can't add or take away. And so whenever the Lord is calling us to do a new thing in our life, most of the time it's a new area of obedience that we need to yield to. When the Lord's calling us to do a new thing, it's saying that we are no longer going to be held by what we want our lives to do, but we are now carrying the cross because that is what he commanded us to do. The command in Scripture says, go unto all the world and preach the gospel because all authority has been given to him. Therefore, therefore, we're to go and make disciples. The transaction between accepting Lord as a means of salvation, as a means of lordship, is saying that it's no longer the path that I choose. The Lord now has a new path for me. Secondly, will you accept the call or will you question the call? Or, number three, will you be a follower or a Pharisee? How will you know if I'm a Pharisee? There's a couple little things we need to see. Your first response is to find fault. That's what stung with me the most. Is your first reaction to find fault? That hit me. In my personality, you know, I've taken the enneagram and I'm a one. And so, what that means is I like doing things the right way. If any of you've taken the enneagram, you'll know what that means. But it also means that I'm a perfectionist. It also means that I I, I hold a high standard for myself, but others. And whenever they don't measure up to that standard, the fault is where I place them. A Pharisee. That hurt. Because, you know, my, my, my understanding is one of surrender. My understanding is one of, of, of good heart. But the first is, do I find fault? The second, if we categorize who is in and who is out, a lot of times we'll, we'll have those who do not understand the gospel who have never been in church. They'll give their lives to Christ, but then the walk of sanctification is one that is often a learning curve for them. They'll slip up and cuss every now and again. They'll slip up and do something. And then whenever we who are righteous see this, we now categorize them as still sinful. And we place them as either in or we place them as out. This is the way of a Pharisee. If you only think the gospel is for certain people, If you only think the gospel is for certain people. Finally, if you have a hard time showing mercy. Hosea chapter 6 says that he would rather, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. Mercy is not only implied to Him giving it to us, but it's also us giving it to others. And so, whenever we start breaking down just this little passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 9 from verses 9 to 17, we need to understand that it carries great weight. It's right in between two miracles. But it also gives us what we need to be followers of Christ. First, we need to answer the call. We need to know that we're not unworthy. We're not in too low of a place. We're not outside of his call. Matthew was rejected, but Jesus went to his home. This meant more to Matthew than often we can realize because Jesus was saying, you're accepted. You're never out of the call and acceptance of Christ. The second that we need to understand is he desires mercy. He desires us to be a merciful people. He desires us to be a welcoming home. Now, this is really not applying to this church because we are a welcoming people. We love But, as we go into the holidays next week, let us remember that a meal can mean more to others than we can realize. And if there are those who are lonely, sometimes the holidays can be the most loneliest. If we are to show mercy, if we are to show acceptance, If we are to show the very love that Christ gave unto us, let's invite people into our home. Let's invite people in and give them love. This isn't applying to people who are struggling, you know, you you can be that. If you know of someone who is not a Christian, this could be a very good opportunity to invite them into your home because a welcoming hand might be the very thing they need. But it's also something that we need to understand in our corporate body, in our body, our fellowship, that we can be a table that someone can come to. Lastly, we need to understand that God can do new things where we might think none can be done. You are never too old. You are never too young to begin a new thing that changes lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks truth directly to our lives. We thank you that we can draw on the understanding and know that you have such a calling for us. For you have called us to come. Lord, let us be obedient. Let us not reject, let us not question, but let us respond. Let us hold fast to the covenant truth and knowing that we are to show mercy and grace, that we are to live a welcoming life. And we are not to live a life of acceptance or rejection to others. God, let us live a life of godliness and follow the steps that you led Let us invite the sinner into a home of restoration. Let us invite those who are lonely into a home of love and compassion. For you desire mercy. God, we thank you. We acknowledge your truth tonight. We acknowledge knowing that you have great things in store for us and we need to hold fast to the scriptural purpose. And know that whenever we come into unity with the Word, we are coming into unity with the Spirit. God, we thank you for your divine revelation. God, we thank you for your truth. In the name of Jesus, amen.